Good evening and welcome to the Milwaukee County Historical Society. I'm Mae McCulley and I'm the Executive Director here. We're thrilled to host this event tonight and to have all of you here. So, all the way from Nebraska, I just flew in this morning, I believe, we have Patrick Jones, who is the author of the book we'll be discussing tonight, but he is also a professor at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. So I'd like to thank them for thinking of us, um, for Patrick for being here, and we look forward to hearing what you have to say. Thank you. How's everybody doing tonight? Well, I really appreciate being here. It's great to be back in Milwaukee. I went to grad school down the road in Madison, and uh, that's where I first got into this uh, topic, and I'll talk a little bit about that in a second. So uh, I first wanted to just thank um, everybody who helped put this together um, and give me the opportunity to come back and to just share some of my thoughts about uh, the, the history of the civil rights era here in Milwaukee, particularly on the 50th anniversary of the historic open housing uh, campaign. I've really spent the last decade, more than that, doing the work on it, but, but uh, I've been at Nebraska for 12 years, and you know, a big part of what I do is to try to take the story of Milwaukee to a broader audience. I'll be in Harlem in a couple of weeks at the Schomburg um, uh, Center there talking about Milwaukee, and I really think that this is not only a, a really critical um, history for the state of Wisconsin and for you who live here in Milwaukee, but it's a critical um, part of our national narrative and it deserves its rightful spot in the broader story that we tell of the modern black freedom movement. And so um, I really appreciate being here and, and everybody who played a part in, um, in helping to make this happen tonight. So I have waved, I have a zillion slides here and I use this for teaching, so I'm gonna kind of blaze through um, a lot of them here and so I can get to certain things. Um, but I didn't wanna, I was going to try to pare them all down, and then I thought, well, maybe people want to see them, and there's something to be said just about the accumulation of things. There are so many great visual images of the movement here, and it really brings it to life um, in an important way. I teach, I'm an associate professor of history and African American studies at the University of Nebraska, Lincoln, um, and I spend a lot of time uh, here as a grad student, and I lived in Milwaukee for a couple of years, and continue to have good friends. And, um, uh, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, which is a place that's not too unlike Milwaukee as, as well. So part of what I do as a historian is I think a lot about uh, the politics of remembering and memory and uh, why we remember the past. What, what is it that we remember about the past? Um, why do we remember the past? How do we remember the past? You know, who gets to decide what gets remembered about the past? Um, and what are the implications of what and how we remember the past? Um, we've seen these kinds of questions come into play recently around Confederate monuments, right? And there's been a lot of controversy over that, about how we've reflected and remembered a particular moment in our past, a painful and a tragic one, um, right? And it's not just about that past, it's about what the meaning of that is in a present moment of racial crisis, too. And so that's a different kind of example. But I think about that in terms of what I do, my major field, and that is the, the civil rights and black power era and how we think about that and reflect on it, how we tell the story of that. And when I was a grad student, not all that long ago, um, at UW-Madison, uh, there was, and, and still really is in the popular mindset, a kind of established narrative of the civil rights era. Um, and it went something like this, and I'm just going to go real fast through it. It essentially started with Brown, the Brown, historic Brown decision, 
Um, and then uh, Rosa Parks, who's kind of presented as a tired old lady sitting down on a bus. And, um, and then we maybe got something about massive resistance of white Southerners, and oftentimes through the story of the Little Rock School desegregation crisis. And then we kind of would move on to the sit-in movement of 1960, where the students really enter the scene in the Southern movement, um, followed by the next year, the Freedom Rides, and then the Birmingham campaign with the dominant images of the fire hoses and German shepherds. Uh, Martin Luther King at the end of that summer in 63 with his uh, the March on Washington. And the only thing most people remember about that is the I Have a Dream speech. Um, and, oops, sorry. And then we get the Selma voting rights campaign, similarly with uh, some historic images of police violence against uh, nonviolent protesters at the foot of the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And all of this kind of culminates then in the, le the major uh, two legislative achievements, the 1964 Civil Rights Act and the 1965 Voting Rights Act. And in this telling, um, it's kind of a romantic and idealistic narrative of interracialism um, and integration. It's a narrative that privileges nonviolence and emphasizes the faith dynamic of the movement. It's a narrative of hopefulness and inevitable change in the way that it was, it's told. A kind of heroic and redemptive and a mythic narrative of a triumphant American democracy that while as bad as things were, American democracy, it was said, kind of ultimately recognized the bad and, to use the movement language, overcame it. Right? It's a narrative that was largely um, focused on national leaders and institutions of power, like Congress and presidents and things like that, Martin Luther King. It was a top-down history in that regard, um, in terms of power. It was a narrative that was almost exclusively focused on the American South. When I was a grad student, hardly anybody was doing anything on the, the urban North, sociologists and things talking about ghettoization and things like that. But in terms of movement history, not much of anything at all was going on. In this kind of telling, the North then would enter this, the picture really only in the mid and late 1960s, um, along with uh, the Black Power movement. Um, it was often portrayed as a kind of wrong turn for the movement or the start of the decline of the civil rights era, uh, called kind of what we would call a declensionist model. Um, the emphasis was often on quote-unquote race riots in, in urban centers outside of the South and on black criminality within those um, urban rebellions. Uh, there was an emphasis that, on uh, the turn away from interracialism and towards racial exclusivity, sometimes put in the language of is this reverse racism during the black power era an emphasis on the repudiation of nonviolence in favor of, uh, it was said, violence. Right, so a kind of negative uh, narrative. A narrative that was often stalked by a kind of a specter of uh, frightening black manhood that had been unleashed in this black power moment, too. And as someone who was born in Baltimore and grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, I had a lot of questions about this narrative. It didn't really make sense because I knew, for instance, that Cleveland, Ohio had a very rich racial history, an African-American history and a civil rights history. I knew that was true of Baltimore as well. My, the town I would call my hometown where I grew up, Cleveland, is the first major American city to elect an African-American in 1967, Carl Stokes. 
but there wasn't a whole lot of models for the work that I was trying to do. So what I wanted to do was try to think about the movement in the North. And over the last couple of decades, when I started as a grad student, there was this transformation that was happening with the way that we think about the civil rights movement. And that started to happen in a lot of different ways. One, people started to challenge the chronology and push it back before the Brown decision, the roots of the movement back to the World War II era or the Depression era maybe even. Some began to bring it forward in time past the death of Martin Luther King in 68 or the early 1970s, right? So expand the chronology. Others began to look um, from a bottom-up or a grassroots perspective to look at local campaigns and grassroots organizing. And when we began to do that, it opened up new worlds because when we look in new ways, we see new things. So one of the things that we really started to see when we looked from a grassroots perspective was women. And their, not only their presence and their role, but their central, fundamental role in struggles for racial justice. We began to transform our thinking about black power um, and itself, not as something that just emerged as a slogan in the mid-1960s, but the things that we call black power, whether it was racial pride, whether it was armed self-defense, whether it was racial exclusivity, all kinds of things, um, community control, had always been there in the, in the community. So the roots of black power are much deeper. And we began to think in more complicated ways about nonviolence, but also the presence of armed self-defense within the struggles for racial justice in the United States, which is another thing that's always been there, but had kind of been hidden in this narrative that privileged nonviolence. We began to reconsider movement heroes, and we have a number of, of books that, for instance, reclaim the last few years of Dr. King's life when he his politics move in a more radical direction or complicate our thinking about Malcolm X or somebody like Rosa Parks, who Jean Theo Harris has written a wonderful book about and reminds us that you know she lives half of her life outside of Montgomery. She lives in Detroit. She becomes an advocate of black power. And there's a whole story of her civil rights life that is forgotten because she's frozen in time with the Montgomery bus boycott. Others put the movement in an international perspective some develop, began to develop a comparative framework to look at the black freedom movement in comparison to some of the other movements for justice of that time period. Good friend Danielle McGuire, who also uh, did some of her work at uh, Wisconsin, um, brought sexual violence um, into the movement. Others have been looking at sexuality within the context of the movement. And what I wanted to do was to look at the movement beyond Dixie. To, as I said, from my own experience growing up, I knew there was an important story to be told about uh, struggles for racial justice outside of the South. And I'll tell you at the end why I think that's particularly important. But for now, I'll just say that it didn't really resonate with my own experience. My master's work was on the Southern movement, and I wanted to find, for my dissertation, which ultimately became this book, I wanted to find uh, a story about the, the urban North that I could kind of test this thinking out. I started working on Cleveland, that's the book I'm, I'm working on now, um, but I wasn't there, I was here, and I found out a little bit about the Youth Council and Commandos and the Open Housing Campaign and Father Grappi, this kind of curious figure of this white Catholic priest that's involved with ultimately a black power movement and you know trying to make sense of that. There were at places like where we're sitting right now, uh, just a wealth of archival materials to work with, and that really matters. Um, that's something that I worry about in the moment that we live in today with the ephemeral nature of digital technology and things like that, but also we don't 
um, often tear and preserve. I, the State Historical Society is one of the great institutions for historical preservation in the world, I would say. And it is, you know, over the last more than decade been really suffering and hurting, and we need to prioritize that. What allowed me to do this work was the people who lived it and shared their stories. Some of them are here today, um, which I could get insights that I couldn't get from the historical record, but also that there were institutions like this that valued this history and had the foresight to keep documents and to maintain them in the beautiful space like upstairs and all those boxes that you can see um, up there and to preserve them over time, right? So when I began to think about the urban north, one of the first things we need to remember is that things look different in the urban north. The context out of which race relations and black experience emerge different in the urban north in some important ways than it is in the south. So it's urban, um, right, by and large, uh, at least where most black people are. It's industrial. There's an industrial economy that shapes work life and the, and the landscape. There's the presence of a strong labor union movement, the presence of uh, a whole host of white ethnic European immigrant groups that have come um, to work in those industrial um, jobs and things like that. The centrality of geogra geography or physical space, so we get these tight-knit white ethnic neighborhoods, an Italian neighborhood, an Irish neighborhood, German neighborhood, and the sense that, you know, that's our space, you know, right, that we kind of control a space, right? So the presence and the importance of space and geography is really uh, key in the urban north. And the power of the Catholic Church as a defining and dominant institution in a place like Milwaukee and a number of other cities, you know, a third to a half of the population is Catholic. And because of the way the Catholic Church works with authority and hierarchy, that is a, a key mediating institution, an institution that many look to for leadership and to understand their world and things like that. And that's in part, I think, why Father Grappi becomes such an important uh, presence here, as well as a controversial one in Milwaukee. And in the, in the urban north, despite being segregated and discriminated against in a myriad, myriad ways, African Americans can vote in a way that they can't in other places. So even though they'll be limited in their political power, we'll get a Vell Phillips uh, in the late 50s that gets elected as the first African American and first woman to the Common Council here. So the context is very different, and that's one of the things we need to understand is that black experience, race relations, emerge out of a different context. So we need to understand that and think about that. And so that leads us to some different kinds of issues or the same issues that play out a little bit differently. So the importance of housing and open housing, educational equality, not because there are explicit laws that mandate segregation or discrimination, but because of whether it's housing patterns, but also the choices and decisions that are being made by those who run the school board, the way they draw lines, the way they allocate resources, the way they place teachers and things are, are creating a discriminatory education system. Issues around urban redevelopment, ending the ghetto, ending slumification, things like that are central. Uh, at the top of the list really should be economic justice, the issue of unemployment and impoverishment. Um, within an industrial economy where there's a pr strong presence of labor unions, but where discrimination is pervasive, not just from industry, but also from large segments of the labor movement as well, or even when labor union uh, leaders will advocate for civil rights, many of the white working class will rebel against them and not um, uh, accede to that as well, and will resist um, the introduction of African-American workers too. So lots of issues around economic justice and access to work and employment, uh, 
meaningful political empowerment and civic representation. So what does it mean to have the right to vote, but still not be, you know, your vote not have a lot of impact? So you can have one person on the Common Council and advocate for open housing, but you get outvoted every time, 18 to 1, when you try to introduce an ordinance um, for fair housing, a non-discrimination ordinance. So what does it mean to have meaningful political power in the urban north as well? And there's a lack of civic representation on other kinds of administrative bodies, boards, et cetera, in the, in the city as well. How do you get access to public dollars, right? A city, a lot of city politics are about how do you get your piece of the action, you know, right, for your part of the community and things like that. So if you don't have meaningful civic representation and political power or economic power, you know, right, how do you get access to then social power and, and, and access to public dollars, right, that are all of ours through tax money? And then there's the issue of social equality. Milwaukee is a segregated city through, through technical and legal mechanisms, through housing and um, things like that, employment discrimination, but also through social practice. Many people talk to me about, you know, living here, you came to know what restaurants and areas of the community that where you were not welcome if you were African American, and where you came to know that very quickly by white people's behavior. Maybe it would be a racial slur, maybe it would be slow service in a restaurant, or rude behavior, or no service at all, so you just sat there and other people are getting served. You start to know where you can go and where you can't go, where you're welcome and where you're not welcome. And then you begin to kind of curtail your behavior um, around that as well. And of course, one of the most uh, significant issues too is police community relations, a long history of, of tension-filled um, relations between the community and the police. So I wanted to think about these things, and so Milwaukee became the case study for me um, to think about the movement in the urban north. So I'm thinking about this as a historian, someone who grew up in a place like this, but I'm not a Milwaukeean, you know, right? And so that's what movement participants can tell you. And so I encourage you to read their stories, to talk to them. Again, some of them are here with us tonight to go to other events. They have something different to tell and to offer. I'm talking to you as a historian and how I think about this as a scholar of the movement, you know, right? And so I needed a case study. Like I said, I didn't have many examples. And so Milwaukee became the place that I, I, I first started to really think about this and try to figure it out. And so the black community in Milwaukee grows really fast in the post-World War II era. Right? African Americans are segregated in uh, what comes to be known as the inner core. Um, black people in Milwaukee face widespread discrimination uh, in employment, union membership, housing, public education, poorly represented in politics, business, civic bodies. Um, the, uh, what we call the inner core quickly becomes overcrowded. Um, it goes from ghettoization to increasing slumification or dilapidation of the, of the, uh, of the conditions of housing um, and, and uh, infrastructure in that area of town. Uh, pervasive unemployment, poverty, rising crime rates, um, drug use, increasing conflict with police. And so we get this in the post-war period as the black community uh, grows, we get increasing isolation within the community and uh, increasing, you know, northern-style Jim Crow. And it's particularly bad in, in Milwaukee. Maybe the worst in the country, all right? If not, we're splitting hairs um, here. And so the pattern of segregation and racial inequality that plagues all northern cities, right, is particularly stark in Milwaukee in this period. So the black population 
kind of skyrocket, explodes during this, this period, right? So their presence is felt by white people who are largely tuned out before this. Most white people are not thinking about black people. But when they go from 2% to 15%, right, it starts to get on more of the white community's radar. Right? When they are tuned in, they're tuned in through a kind of biased and stereotypical lens, usually, a bunch of convenient stereotypes that allow them to uh, not take much of any responsibility for uh, the discriminatory practices that are creating the conditions that African Americans live in. There are racially restrictive covenants, redlining and blockbusting and steering and other kinds of mechanisms that real estate and financial institutions and the insurance industry use, along with white flight that create a segregation index in Milwaukee that's more extreme during this period of time than Birmingham, Alabama, right, which has its place in the national civil rights narrative. 98% of all black Milwaukeeans live in uh, the central city. That's the highest rate in the United States. Only 3% of African Americans owned homes. That means 97% uh, rented. That plays into police brutality because you had to be what was called a freeholder to own property to bring a formal complaint against the police. And so if 90%, 97% of African Americans are renters, that, that hems you in when you have problems with the police, too. There's pervasive discrimination, as I said, in industry and labor unions. 30 to 50% unemployment rate in some neighborhoods, with poverty rates five to seven times that of white people. Um, and as I mentioned, ghettoization kind of evolving into slumification, meaning we've got separation and segregation, and then the conditions deteriorating within that segregated area of the community. Highway construction in the city displaces thousands more black folks and, and, and goes right through the community as well, exacerbating these problems. There's a small but fairly politically impotent black middle class, um, little representation, as I mentioned, in politics or civic boards and institutions, inferior public schools, and African Americans lag in almost all health indicators, right? So massive, obvious, gross inequalities in Milwaukee. So my book traces the, the, the movement here in, in town, the struggle for racial justice, campaigns for, for racial justice in the civil rights era. So the first story that I talk about is the murder of, of Daniel Bell, who's a 22-year-old African-American. His family has moved up from the South. He's got 10 siblings. And he, it's a February night, and he's driving through, and he gets busted for taillight by two cops uh, who are looking to up their kind of quotient of, of uh, tickets and things like that. They pull him over, and he's afraid. He's gotten tickets before because he has literacy issues. He doesn't have a driver's license. He can drive just fine, but he doesn't have a license. He's been busted before and kind of harassed by cops. So he runs from cops. The cops run after them, and one cop puts his gun up and very close to his back shoots him dead. And then they plant a knife on him, and they end up getting off, and despite a whole host of pieces of evidence that make it look fishy from the, the get-go. We only know that story beyond the family and things like that, because the cop that doesn't do the shooting comes back in the 80s and admits it. He's guilt-ridden, and he, he comes back to the city, and he admits that. Um, so we get the first attempts to kind of do some organizing around that. It, it doesn't work too well. There's some splits in the community around kind of representational politics. Middle class African Americans put the blame in some ways on the migrant community and kind of embrace a kind of moralistic politic. Um, but we get some kind of protest around that 
Um, so it's the first uh, campaign that I, I looked at. We then get a, a chapter of the Congress of Racial Equality. They conduct the first sit-ins in 1963 to, to protest some racist statements um, by a member of what uh, newly formed Social Development Commission, which has been set up to address urban inequality and racial discrimination in Milwaukee. And those protests are the first to attract kind of broad support within uh, the black community um, here in Milwaukee at the time. Fred Lynn's a sausage maker make some disparaging comments and suggest that all African Americans should be barred from coming to the, to the community. Uh, between 1963 and 1965, we get a really interesting and vigorous uh, school desegregation campaign led by uh, Lloyd Barbie uh, and uh, what's called the Milwaukee United School Integration Committee, my, my favorite acronym of any civil rights group, MUSIC. Um, they lead essentially a three-year campaign to end segregated schools here, and they escalate their tactics from first trying to go to the school board and um, negotiate and things like that, to the first thing the school board does say, we don't even know if it's segregated because we don't keep that data. So they collect the data, the NAACP, and they go and music, and they bring it back to the school board, and then they say, well, it's not our fault, it's because of housing patterns, and that's beyond the purview of us, right? So it's de facto segregation and, you know, we'd like to do something but we can't do anything about that. But in fact, they, it's not, housing is a big part of it, but it's not just about that. As I mentioned before, they're drawing the lines in such a way to maintain segregation. They're allocating resources in such a way that are bolstering um, segregation or, or discriminatory between white and black schools. They're making decisions um, in their capacity as the school board um, uh, that are uh, creating the segregation and exacerbating it. This is gonna be then when we start to get Father Grappi um, emerging in the local movement um, as well. So here he is with uh, uh, youth council members. This is where the youth council is gonna to start, to the NAACP youth council start to get involved in the local movement in a significant way. Towards the tail end of this, Father Grappi is going to participate with a whole lot of other white clergy from around the country and go down to Selma. Uh, he, Dr. King's call, and go down. He's going to des describe that as many um, white religious folks did at the time as a kind of conversion experience. He's going to be transformed by that. He's going to come back, and he will play an uh, increasingly central role in the local movement. Father Grappi had a special connection with intercore young people. Um, it dated back to the late 1950s when, as a seminarian, he would come um, to the Intercore and work uh, with Father Matthew Gottschalk um, at a summer program there for young people. He began to make relationships. He began to see the conditions that African Americans lived in and began to understand um, uh, racial inequality in a different way from that kind of experience and, from, uh, and through the lens of his faith. Father Grappi and the Youth Council become a very potent alliance, and they, until the end of the decade, are really going to be the central movers for the movement. My PowerPoint might keep pointing to jump ahead here. So uh, one of the, the important campaigns they, they mount is against the Eagles Club, um, which is a fraternal organization. Now, you're allowed to be discriminatory constitutionally as a private um, uh, organization like that, but all the movers and shakers in the community, if you're a business leader, if you're a judge, if you're a political figure, you were in the Eagles Club. And so when they get uh, arrested for protesting, they're being brought before judges, and then they're getting um, 
you know, fine or something like that. They're not being treated with sympathy within the court system, right? And these folks are in a club that has a Caucasian-only membership policy. So African-Americans are not allowed to belong to the Eagles Club. So they begin to make an argument that it's really a quasi-public institution, and we need to know that we're getting kind of fair treatment in the dispensation of justice. So they begin to protest, and they first do it downtown at the Eagles Club itself, but then they start to go to outlying areas, more affluent white areas, where um, folks who are prominent officials, judges and things like that, live, and they think they can embarrass them, and some of them maybe will resign and they'll start a wave of resignations. They famously go to Wauwatosa, outside um, Judge Cannon's house, and hundreds and hundreds of white people come out and counter protest. The National Guard is called out, ultimately. So these are just images of that campaign. And here's an image of the guard there. And the welcoming, the white welcoming committee shows up too. So the KKK shows up with their shiny new robes and things like that, right? This is Milwaukee. This is, you know, suburban tranquility being disrupted, right? This is not just, you know, a lot of time. what I always think is interesting, a lot of white Milwaukeeans like to chalk up white reaction in the civil rights era to kind of working class Southsiders, right? And when we can look at a whole host of data to show all kind, whether it's letters that are written to public officials, whether it's the vote for George Wallace in 1964, we can see white reaction from all sectors of the community. So right, you know, that's not Birmingham, that's not Selma, that's Milwaukee, right? Shortly thereafter, the NAACP office here is bombed by a homemade bomb, and Klan members um, from <laughs> Illinois and Wisconsin are behind that. The Youth Council, because of this, this violence and threats of violence, um, forms an offshoot group of young African-American men called the Commandos. It's a, a, a self-defense group. They uh, ultimately will march alongside, out, outside of, of marches and demonstrations, right? So the protesters are marching, they'll be um, in formation outside of them. They practice what they call not violence, and so they don't carry weapons like the Black Panthers or something like that. They don't instigate any violence, but they're very explicit in saying that if white people come at protesters, Father Grappi, youth council members, we will fight back, right? And we'll be happy to do that. And they do at various moments in time. So they occupy a very interesting place between kind of Kingian nonviolence and more assertive kinds of armed self-defense and even revolutionary violence that we can see in the Black Power era. So, you know, we can see a diverse range of tactics and strategies when we really start to look at local campaigns for racial justice. During this period, 1966 into 1967, um, there becomes a lot of conflict between the police and Father Grappi and the Youth Council and Commandos. They begin to harass them. Uh, the city turns what had been the Red Squad into what's called the Tactical Squad. It's a special unit that essentially its whole job is to just kind of keep tabs on and harass uh, the civil rights activists. When they go out, um, 
Mary was telling me earlier, she would go, they'd go to school. You know, they'd be there taking pictures of them. Father Groppy, youth council members, when they would go out to eat or something like that, they'd be standing outside, right? When they went in, they'd be there when they went out. They'd bust them for stupid little things, a taillight, cigarette on the butt on the ground, things that normally the cops wouldn't bother themselves doing, you know, right? And just a kind of harassingness, right? So tension is really boiling between uh, police from the late 50s onward, there's been a series of conflicts within the community between police and community members as well. The Youth Council and Commandos are doing organizing. Um, they're going to schools and talking to other young people about it, trying to get people involved. Um, they set up a Freedom House in, in uh, the inner city, right, in the inner core. Um, where Commandos live, Father Grappi lives there for a time. Right? They use that as a base of operations. They use it as an organizing tool as well. So they're doing organizing work in the community. They get involved in issues oftentimes as people bring those issues to them. As Father Grappi would say, you know, um, you know, racial justice is kind of a, it's like a ball of yarn. It doesn't really matter which particular piece you pull off. Right, whether it's housing or school desegregation or police community relations or unemployment and poverty, it all leads you ultimately back to the core issue of racial inequality and white supremacy. It's Father Grappi with some commandos. And for a long time, Milwaukee kind of looked down its nose at other large cities and thought it was different than other other cities and didn't take seriously the plight of the black community, white people telling each other that the community was different and it could handle uh, the inequalities that were growing in the community. But in 1967, it joined the list of a growing number of cities in the United States when there was a civil disturbance, um, what some would call a riot here, others would call a rebellion. Um, but whatever the label, Milwaukee joined the list. It was a tense time. The, uh, Henry Meyer, the, the mayor at the time, called out the guard. He created a citywide curfew, which really, I think, exacerbated the fear among white people, extended the reach of what was a pretty limited civil disturbance in the inner core. But it made everyone in the city kind of feel that fear. There, there were military vehicles on the street and things like that. Um, and he got a lot of, he was a kind of new generation Kennedy-esque Democrat, he got a lot of plaudits from the establishment Democratic Party, but I think in terms of race relations, it didn't help um, uh, in the long run. When I interviewed a lot of people, I heard a lot of interesting stories about white fear. White people during this time period, they go buy a lot of guns, which is what white people tend to do when they think that black people are asserting themselves. Um, but they also would tell, say things like, they thought that black people, like I heard this story several times, that black people were going to come to the south side on the bottom of the 6th Street Viaduct. Like, and I was always like, if they, why, why wouldn't they just walk across or drive across? Like, why would they climb across on the stuff? On, right, which is not about reality, but it has to do with a mindset of white people, a fear in their head about black equality and what you know, assertive blackness meant in their mind, right? And they were willing to defend what they saw as their turf, their city, et cetera. So we get a civil disturbance in Milwaukee. And shortly after that, we get the historic, what we're celebrating this, this year, the 50th anniversary of the open housing campaign. Right now, Vel Phillips has been in the Common Council. She's been working on this issue for several years. Every time she brings up the ordinance, it gets voted down 18 to 1. She's the lonely um, figure there. Something needs to happen to break this impasse. 
uh, a Vietnam veteran, uh, Ronald Britton, comes back, uh, African-American man served his country. He and his family are looking um, for housing. They're discriminated against. They're having trouble. They take their um, complaint to Father Graffi and the Youth Council and Commandos, and they say, you know, what's going on with this? Um, they're moved by that, and they decide they want to get involved in that issue. They approach Bell Phillips and say, hey, we want to help you. We'd like to, you know, march and demonstrate. Right? So they begin to do that. Now, Father Grappi has learned some things from Selma and Kingian nonviolence about confrontation, right? So when they march, they decide to march over the 16th Street Viaduct into the south side, predominantly white working class area of town. Before they do that, they've been protesting some council members who are not voting for it, not having a lot of, of success. So here they are outside of the council president, uh, Mark Schreiber's home. But things similar here. But it really picks up when they decide to, to march into the south side. And when they do that, they're somewhere welcoming, you know, right? But the main story here is that the first two nights of the march, they march into the south side and massive resistance. They face massive resistance from whites. Literally thousands of white people, an estimated maybe as much as 13,000 white people on the second night, pour into the streets of the south side and oppose them. They hold white power signs. They chant white power slogans and racist slogans. Um, they throw rocks, bricks, sticks, dirt, cherry bombs, human feces, all kinds of craziness. Um, happens um, in reaction to a couple hundred peaceful protesters trying to assert their right for fair housing, to not be discriminated against in the sale and rental of property, right? Again, this is about the heroic activism, I would call it, you know, right? But I really want to stress here white reaction, the massive resistance of whites, which we highlight in the Southern movement, but remains fairly shrouded in terms of how we think on a national scale of the Northern movement. There were kind of groups of young Turks, you know, kind of toughs, young toughs that would uh, uh, be in different places, driving cars, hang grappi and effigy, holding signs, things like that. Sometimes the police lines would break and people would rush out and they would attack marchers. Um, so the first two nights are really chaotic. And the second night in particular is really chaotic. Here are just pictures of the throngs of, of white folks. And when the lines break on the second night, the marchers are attacked brutally. And they make a hasty retreat back to the bridge. Sorry, this keeps going. Um, sometimes it goes, sometimes it goes. They make a hasty retreat back to the bridge. The police are kind of sometimes helping them, sometimes participating in, in hurting them and beating them and things like that. Um, a journalist that's there describes it as a war, looks like a war zone um, with civil rights demonstrators beaten and bloodied. They get over the bridge, they go back to their Freedom House, and they're blocked from entering. The police say they hear snipers and they fire um, incendiary tear gas inside. Now these are old wooden structures and the house burns down and then they block the fire trucks from coming and saving the house, putting the fire out. The youth council and commandos believe that it's a purposeful act by the police. They say they heard snipers. You know, we'll leave it at, at that right now. But you can see this is pretty, pretty intense, what's happening here 
in Milwaukee. This is going to initiate what will ultimately be 200 plus consecutive nights of marching and demonstrating for open housing in the city. Right? Now, I always say to my students, like, if you've ever organized an event, it's hard to get like 20 people to come out once. And if you said, hey, come back tomorrow night, there'd be like 10 maybe if you had an awesome event. And if you said, come back every night this week, by like the third night, it's like you and the other organizers sitting there. So to do anything for 200 consecutive nights, some, sometimes it was smaller groups, sometimes it was huge you know, numbers of people and the thousands participating, et cetera, right? But this is quite an achievement, like the Montgomery bus boycott, which goes on for um, 381 days, I think it is. So that burned out Freedom House becomes a rallying point. Uh, there's an initial ban on further demonstrations. Uh, the Youth Council and commandos defy that. Cops come. Um, there's some hassling that goes on there, right? So the tension between the police and the Youth Council and commandos and Father Grappi continues to escalate throughout this period. There are all kinds of wonderful images. Father Grappi, like King in um, Selma, the Youth Council, Father Grappi, they put out a kind of ecumenical call and invite people to come to Milwaukee. And hundreds of people come from other places and participate in the open housing campaign. It garners all kinds of national press at the time. And so I'll just kind of scroll through some of these incredible pictures. That's one of the wonderful things that we've had new ones come out as a result of the 50th, too. The signage. And so as you're marching, you know, you get the reaction, but it's also educative in the community, in the black community. Like other people who aren't participating, right, are seeing these young African-Americans, seeing clergy participate, right? And they're talking about it. They're inspired by it, you know, right? And so it's having impact. There's a huge debate within the Catholic Church about this white Catholic priest. Is it okay for a priest to be protesting in the street? Is it not? Is his rightful place only in the church? Wait a minute, he grew up on the south side. What's he doing living with black people on the north side? He's supposed to be representing our interest. It's largely a white ethnic um, religion, you know, right? In church, there's a small number of African-Americans, but it's primarily white ethnic um, that are in the Catholic Church. And so there's all this like debate and discussion that's happening over this, right? There's this educative kind of process that's happening. Father Grappi is a peculiar site, not only in Milwaukee, but nationally as well. So people are talking about this Catholic priest. And just really incredible. Dick Gregory, the famous um, activist, and comedian who died not too long ago comes up from Chicago and participates um, numerous times in the activism. It's in national uh, press. Father Grappi uh, is on uh, television programs. And so just, you know, an incredible series of, of images. You see the empowerment of young people, march through the winter, you know, Wisconsin winter's cold. And so they sustain it. During Christmas time, they have a Black Christmas campaign to try to encourage people not to shop at downtown stores. That starts to worry um, businesses. There are businesses that work behind the scenes to try to resolve this crisis, right, which is a lesson for, for us, too. St. Boniface becomes the center of the movement, Father Grappi's church. And then you have to, you know, people are coming in. There's thousands of people that are participating. So, you know, 
food, where are people going to use the bathroom, all kinds of you know, logistical issues that have to be worked out. And, and a lot of women are central to those, uh, those actions as well. Here's Father Grappi with the commandos plotting strategy. Bell Phillips, who is you know, middle class African American, a professional African American, I think is an interesting figure for a lot of reasons, but in part because she makes the decision to come and participate in the, in the activism, to march with them. She felt a responsibility to it, and she comes and, and does that. That's not always the case for middle class African American leaders. She's on, gets national notoriety, or she's in Jet magazine. So Alderwoman Phillips calls the open housing campaign at this particular moment, a critical moment as black power is emerging. It's unclear where the movement's going after the legislative achievements of 64 and 65. A last ditch stand for nonviolence, a last ditch stand for the church, and a last ditch stand for an integrated movement. And many onlookers, not just locally, but nationally felt like that about the Milwaukee open housing campaign. Here's a militant, nonviolent campaign that's church-based, that's interracial, you know, right, that maybe is showing how to do it in the North. Because the year before, uh, Martin Luther King is in Chicago, and he's pretty much run out of Chicago. He fails there. He's hit in the face with a rock at one point. He famously says, you know, I've seen a whole lot in the South, but I've never seen racism like I've seen it in Chicago. You know, it's really unclear whether uh, nonviolence can work in the urban North. And the Milwaukee campaign seems to, to be a last chance for it, and a lot of people begin to think they're demonstrating that it does work. The national NAACP creates a special booklet on the Milwaukee open housing campaign. There's national recognition for the Milwaukee movement. At the 67 National Convention, the NAACP Youth Council here beats out more than 500 other youth councils to win uh, the award for the most distinguished service in the fight for freedom. Grappi uh, is named most effective and outstanding advisor to any youth council in the country. He's selected by Esquire magazine as notable person of the year in 1967. AP votes him newsmaker of the year in religion. Right, so lots of national press. Now I just want to hit, hit this here. We have to look, you know, particularly in the wake of what's been happening in our country, what's, what's happened not that long ago in Virginia. We have to think and really grapple, I think, with massive resistance in Milwaukee. It took a whole lot of different forms. One is the power structure, the persistent opposition from white politicians, business leaders, et cetera, as well as local um, white people, the mass of local white people, to even the smallest attempts at racial change, right? The, 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 those who were elites in the community consistently oppose this. School board, there's not segregation here. We don't know, we don't have any data. Well, NAACP and the music create the data, give it to them, well, we still don't see it. It's not us, it's right, passing the buck, unwilling to see it, right? Media attacks on the movement, right? And struggles for racial justice. Lobbying by real estate interests, construction interests, and related professional organizations against um, uh, fair housing. Counter demonstrations, like you've seen, thousands of people pouring into the street to express with their feet and with their bodies and their voices and with their fists and with pieces of wood and rocks and bricks and things like that, their opposition to fair housing, right? Formal groups, closed housing groups, you know, groups that are formed to defend property rights from quote unquote forced integration form in Milwaukee, 
hundreds of local white people sign stop force housing legislation cards, right? So they're not hiding this. They're coming out. They're having their pictures taken, like a guy like this, you know, right? They're putting their names on cards. They're writing letters to the newspaper in public. They're not hiding their racism, right? A property owner's Bill of Rights warns that open housing would erode freedom, destroy free enterprise, and American individualism. So defending discrimination, you should be able to discriminate if you're a property owner. We see taunts, threats, racist chants, we see violence, and we see white people um, voting with their feet by moving into farther and farther areas outside of the downtown area, what we might call white flight. We have images of that. There are, you know, we've got lots of reports from people who participated in newspaper accounts at the time of chants and slogans that were hurled at peaceful open housing marchers. White power, a good droppy's a dead droppy, niggers go home, train niggers, go back to Africa, work, don't march, kill, 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 you know, bring back slavery, we want slaves. These were typical, right? White power sign, a good droppy's a dead droppy. This is Milwaukee. Confederate symbols of the Confederacy, right? That, that resonates with our current moment and the struggles over those symbols and what they mean. Right? There are all kinds of letters, and again, you don't, I use this in class, so don't, don't worry about reading this. Um, but Father Grappi and other officials receive hundreds and hundreds of letters, and they give us this really interesting insight into white resistance. Right? Some of them are overt hate mail. One of the great things for me is Father Grappi organized his letters into hate mail into what he thought were positive ones. That was kind of any kind of constructive um, thing, uh, right? And you went from the smallest number were those to you know, the ugly ones were the, were, were the biggest. So overt kinds of, all kinds of racist stuff, death threats, all kinds of craziness like that. Others that I think are really interesting, using all kinds of racist stereotypes about black people that cast African-Americans you know, in traditional ways as lazy, immoral, stupid, dependent, criminal, violent. Some that used an acculturation model. It stated that you know, black migrants from the South just didn't possess the skills to be successful in the urban North. Some used Cold War fears and talked about outside agitators or communist infiltration of the local movement. Others criticized black power and racial exclusivity and black nationalism. I thought the most fascinating ones were, were kind of an immigrant mythology. A lot of people would write like, my parents were Polish immigrants and nobody ever helped them, so why should we help black people now? Which, in fact, people did help them, whether it was a labor movement that was racially exclusive, whether it was a GI Bill, whether it was housing subsidies to the FHA. There were many ways that the children and families of white immigrants got help along the way. That's not to say they didn't struggle, and that's not to say they weren't discriminated against, but a, a mythology, a narrative is crafted by a lot of white people to allow them to not face the reality that's been constructed by choice and power in the city, right? That's created this discriminatory situation. And so there's a failure to, to recognize that history, right? And we've got all kinds of interesting pictures here of, you know, the marches and demonstrations that illustrate the more overt forms of white resistance. Others played on, you know, uh, old saws about property rights. Catholics continued to debate each other about the role of a Catholic priest um, in this. Others talked about 
you know, confrontational nonviolence and militant rhetoric and things like that. So a whole lot of ways to misdirect from the actual issue at hand and not really address it. One of the things that's intriguing is that what this did was create a kind of white solidarity in a city where the, the lines of difference had traditionally been between white ethnic groups. Struggles between Germans and Irish and Italians and you know, Polish, et cetera, where they were the, those were the salient lines of difference and division. And now you see this kind of unifying sense of whiteness in response to and against assertions by people of color for equality. And there's a, just a pervasive sense of insecurity and fear among these white folks that are writing these letters. Now, this is a really important historical set of documents because unlike the NAACP and stuff, the closed housing groups, they didn't collect their artifacts and give them to the historical society for posterity. So for me as a historian, how do I get at that? So I can look at newspaper accounts, I can look at photographs, you know, that journalists took and things like that. We've seen those. But these letters are a really great window into this kind of, into white minds from the time period to understand what they're thinking. Because one of the things I believe, my grandmother's a Polish immigrant, you know, right, is that racism is rooted in material circumstances. If we want to undo it, we have to understand the material circumstances that it's growing out of and address those. There's a lot of insecurity. It doesn't let them off the hook for their racism, but it's to understand that it's rooted in something. It's the same thing with like people who fly airplanes into buildings. They don't just randomly for no reason do it. They believe there's a reason. It's coming out of some circumstance. It's right. There's a material reality there. And so we want to understand why is it that people get up and decide to fly airplanes into buildings or something? If we don't want that to happen, we should probably try to change the circumstances that are making people so pissed to do something like that, right? And so this gives us some insight there. If we really want to understand the white racist mind and the circumstances that it's rooted in, this starts to let us into that, right? So maybe we can think a little bit more deeply about that. We get kind of anti grappies emerge here, white Catholic priests, oops, I'm sorry. Lots of, um, you know, overt, John Birch Society, neo-Nazis, the KKK all come out all organize, all you know, pass out racist literature and things like that during this time period. Lots of tension with the police. The police, you know, sometimes are helpful, sometimes are not. And there's resistance, you know, right? We shouldn't, you know, idealize or anything, right? Like, there's a reason to fight back, and some people decide to. Prentice McKinney. And police have problems with white demonstrators, too, who are not listening to them, who are breaking their lines and attacking. All kinds of interesting you know, letters, threats of violence. You'll be hanging from a light pole, you know, right? So one of the interesting things about Milwaukee is this kind of black power narrative. We've got a white Catholic priest that's involved with, you know, what we might call a black power movement, young African-American men um, involved in the commandos who are engaging in not violence, a form of self-defense, right? This looks really different than our stereotypical way of thinking of, of black power, right? And so, you know, black power um, is taken by local activists and it's shaped by, 
by local circumstances. There's national rhetoric and event things, and then you know it's applied to net to local circumstances. So when we look in Milwaukee, we see something different, this kind of peculiar form of, of black power that complicates our thinking about what black power is, right? And Dick Gregory famously said, when Father Groffy was challenged for his role in the movement, that we're doing something important here in Milwaukee, that black power is not a color, it's not about your skin color, it's about the attitude. So Groffy could be a black power figure, right? Because he was willing to put himself on the line, to literally put some skin in the game, and I mean like, you know, to put himself at risk to, to help the black community, to live among the, the commandos in the Freedom House, right? To help lead this movement, to advise, right? To help cultivate local leadership, right? That his, it was about his mindset. There are all kinds of black leaders, middle-class black leaders in particular, and many religious leaders who weren't participating in the movements, right? So he was willing to do that. So he earned the love of the people he was working with. You know, right? And so this is an interesting thing. What is black power? Is it about skin color? Is it about the ideas in your head, the attitude, right? The consciousness, right? But it opens up new ways for us as we're thinking about this time period to talk about it and to think about it and to learn about it and learn from it, right? And maybe apply it to our own time period. And black power is not predominantly a negative thing, you know, right? It's a positive and affirming thing from the standpoint of the community, right? It's about self-definition, it's about autonomy, it's about a, a more assertive uh, approach. And even Dr. King saw the importance of the Milwaukee movement. He doesn't come here and participate, but he's, he's aware of it. And he writes a telegram where he says, you guys have essentially done it, right? You guys have found, you know, we can't have this, uh, you know, uh, we found the middle ground between riots and sentimental supplications for justice. You found a way to apply kind of militant nonviolence. You're doing it in Milwaukee, what he couldn't do in Chicago the previous year. And he's using the last few years of his life to try to figure out, to stay relevant in a, an increasingly militant black power era, right? But you guys had the courage to figure it out, right? So Milwaukee is transformative for Milwaukee. After King's death, we're going to get a National Fair Housing Act. When it's debated um, in Congress, people like Walter Mondale, who are leading that legislative effort, they're going to talk about Milwaukee. They're going to say, Milwaukee is a prime example. If we don't do anything, there's going to be more stuff like what's going on in Milwaukee. We have to pass this legislation. And it's the third, and I would call the forgotten, Civil Rights Act of the 1960s, the Civil Rights Act of 1968, which we, is the Fair Housing Act. And Milwaukee plays a similarly catalytic role in helping gain passage of that in Congress as Birmingham does to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, as Selma does to the Voting Rights Act of 1965. So Milwaukee is transformative and critically important to the city of Milwaukee, to the state of Wisconsin, but it also is too to the nation right, to American racial politics. And other people are noticing it, and they're acting on it, right? There's that telegram. There's the, the so I, I, after the open housing campaign, I talk about some other campaigns. You know, here's the massive protest, 20,000, maybe plus, march after Dr. King is assassinated. Uh, Milwaukee is one of the notable cities for not um, turning violent after King is assassinated. Um, right, I think the civil rights activists, the work they've been doing here has a lot to do with that um, as well. 
We're ultimately going to get the Civil Rights Act. We're going to get then a local ordinance as well, finally, that's going to break through. Father Grappi will continue, ultimately split with the Youth Council and Commandos, but stay close with many of them. He'll continue to be active, uh, advocate for peace and anti-war, for Native American rights, labor rights, um, and a whole host of other social justice uh, issues. There's an interesting Mother's March uh, after some threatened cuts to the welfare budget at the state level, a coalition of African-Americans, Latinos, and poor whites march from Milwaukee to the Capitol, um, and they end up taking over the Capitol, getting arrested. Um, uh, but a, a new, it, it kind of underscores to me the growing uh, presence of the Latino community here um, in the state and in the city of Milwaukee as well. So the racial dynamics are beginning to change. These are some images from that campaign. I have an uncle who was studying to be a priest in Baltimore during the same, uh, a contemporary of Father Grappi, um, and, uh, and then he leaves and marries my aunt. Um, but he talked about, you know, in the seminary, they, they talk a lot about Father Grappi. They debated um, Father Grappi along with the Catonsville Nine, a very important um, set of peace activists during this period, too, who, who um, lit some uh, draft cards on fire similarly spurred a lot of debate within the, the Catholic community about the role of the a priest, about um, you know, what is the responsibility of the faith to get involved with social justice issues. It's the time of Vatican II. So Father Grappi is going to continue to be involved. So we have this really vigorous and interesting northern movement here. A series of campaigns, the open housing campaign being the most notable one, the one that really gets the most national um, uh, media attention and impact. So it tells us some things about the importance of the North. Yet we have to grapple, you know, particularly now 50 years later, and given incidents in the last few years with police killings, you know, in, in the community here, with uh, civil disturbance again, with the, the, the shameful pervasiveness of, of impoverishment, of all kinds of urban inequality along um, uh, a racial line that persists today. You know, here's Milwaukee, you know, today still a hyper-segregated city, you know, too. So we have to confront the reality that despite the accomplishment of the civil rights era, why does this persist? And what does it mean? And what do we do about it. You may have seen uh, and read Matt Desmond's incredible book, uh, won the Pulitzer Prize, um, Evicted, about the persistence of, of uh, inequality in housing uh, today um, here. Uh, so Milwaukee, and this is true across the north, that pattern that I showed you, that pattern is the same for just about every middle-sized and large American city in the United States today. And that includes large cities that you think are real diverse enough. They are diverse, but they're still segregated. Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, etc. The most segregated cities in the country, if you look at that top list, they're northern cities. Right? They're not deep south cities for the most part. Right? So when I think about, I'm going to jump over this, you know, what are some of the lessons from northern movement story right, in Milwaukee and beyond, is that one, the North matters, right, that these stories are every bit as important as Birmingham and Selma, but it doesn't fit that popular narrative, so we have to continue to refine and change that, and I'll, I'll end by telling you why I think they're not, not in that popular narrative. 
but we need to continue to mine these stories, to write about them, to tell about them, to collect the stories, you know, right? And we need to show up and hear about them and think about them. We also have to reckon with white reaction and massive resistance. We use that term in the scholarly ways in talking about the period after Brown and Montgomery until the sit-ins when there was a massive region-wide reaction against civil rights, the civil rights movement. But massive resistance was in the north. Milwaukee demonstrates that clearly. I mean, it's shocking. I start with those first two nights, and most of the time I teach this, I tell the story of going over the bridge and that response. And people literally, you know, it's a showstopper, a jaw dropper. You know, they go, oh shit, I have people come up to me afterward and go like, I'm from there, or I, I didn't, I've never, why haven't I heard about Milwaukee? Or I grew up there, I went to school, nobody ever told me about that when I used to teach at Wisconsin, uh, Madison, you know, I had students, black, white, Latino, say to me afterwards after I tell the story, shamefully, I grew up there. I nobody told me about this. You know, that's changed in the last decade. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of great stuff happening with this 50th anniversary to some degree. But, you know, it's a hidden history, all right? And we have to confront that white reaction. Like, you know, these things that happened in Virginia and there's nothing new about that. Neo-Nazis and white re reaction and violence, and that's typical. What that says about us when we go, oh my gosh, is our ignorance of our own history, right? And what that unknowing or lack of knowing means for our inability then to make sense of what's happening now in a larger context and to think about solutions that might fit the scale of the problem and the longevity of the problem, too. Right? We've built this problem over literally centuries, over decades upon decades, with billions of dollars and actual hard work and actual action by people, not just by luck or chance or something. So solutions are going to have to be sustained over long periods of time. We're going to have to be willing to put billions of dollars of resources into those solutions and sustain them, etc. And white people need to do some serious work about looking at their own responsibility, right? Their own participation. Not just in those most obvious ways about the Nazi stuff, but about the fact that the vast majority of everyday um, Milwaukee, white Milwaukeeans who didn't show up with Nazi signs and stuff, but were complicit in it. That didn't stand forth in the face of obvious segregation, in the face of data being presented to them. That did all kinds of things to maintain this system and to resist even the smallest kinds of change, right? We can see from this story the distinctiveness of the Northern movement in some important ways, but also some interconnectivity of North and South. So I gave you one example, Rafi going to Selma, being inspired by it, learning from it, bringing some of that back. Others went down and participated in Southern campaigns, et cetera. There's, there's relationship here as well as distinctiveness. That role of the Catholic Church as a critical institution for understanding these politics in the urban North. The militant nonviolence in a place like Milwaukee, right? And whether that's possible or not, right? Who said it wasn't possible? Maybe Milwaukee suggests that there is some possibility there. Maybe there's something for us to learn about it. And black power is something that's way more complicated and contested and locally defined than we normally think about it. And most importantly, maybe, that Milwaukee deserves its place in the national narrative. Alongside Birmingham and Selma, we need to ask, why is it that certain things get in the national narrative? Why is Birmingham and Selma in the national narrative, but not Milwaukee? Why is it when I go to Harlem in a couple of weeks at the beginning of December and tell this, there's a whole lot of people that will go, I mean, people that are deep in black history and stuff, that'll go like, what? I, I never heard about it. I don't, I don't know anything about the, any of this stuff. No, right? Why is that? 
And so here's what I'll say at the end here, is here's why I don't think we tell these stories. So we tell the Southern story in a, 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 a mythic way, as a redemptive story of American democracy. It's a version of that story that lets everybody kind of feel good about it and feel like, oh, we dealt with that, we've overcome that, we did it, right? So we, one, tell the Southern story in a very comfortable way for white people that's not challenging, right? Despite there still being pervasive issues in that region as well, you know, right? But we have this kind of mythic narrative, right? And we see in the Northern story, so my advisor, a guy named Tim Tyson, maybe some of you know him, he was at Wisconsin, he's now back in North Carolina, one of the leading historians of the movement. He read my dissertation, and he was writing a book in his attic, and I was finishing my dissertation. I gave him the manuscript, and we met like a week or two later to talk about it. And we met at his table, and he literally had like tears in his eyes. He was like, I mean, he knows from his own family history, he knows from the research and work he does as a premier historian of the movement, and he said, this is bleak. Like, despite all these incredible movement stories and stuff, the situation in Milwaukee is, you know, it's the most segregated city in the country today. It's shameful, the situation facing the black community. Like, like what the, you know, what's up with that, right? So it's a bleak story in some ways. It's not a redemptive story of American democracy when we begin to look at these stories about the urban North. And whereas the Jim Crow South used to be the metaphor for race relations in the United States, the metaphor for the tragedy of race today is the urban North, you know, right? And so when we dig these stories out and we tell them, I used to have people all the time say to me, I'd ride around on the bus to go do research. And white people would either, you know, love or hate Father Graffi. There was no way in the middle. And they would either loud me for what I'm doing or they would say, why are you digging that stuff up? Why don't you just let sleeping dogs lie? Don't, let's not talk about that anymore, right? Because that's an, they knew that this mattered and that it, it made us confront a history and a reality, not just of the past, but one that continues today, right? And so that's the pain of it. And so that's why I think a lot of white folks don't want to teach about it, they don't want to learn about it, they don't want to confront it. Because with learning about it comes responsibility to it, you know, right? And that's on me. I'm a white dude. I'm about as white as you can look. Blonde hair, blue eyed, you know, fair skin. Right? And so that's a big part of why I think we don't tell these stories. It compels us to recognize and then reckon with not only a past, but a present predicament that many would just rather not deal with. But on the upside of that, I would say that that's how we have to, you know, we have to recognize this so we can reckon with the present circumstance. If by un, you know, uncovering these stories and learning about them, by understanding this longer trajectory, what we've done and not done, maybe we can think in more complicated and deeper ways and more meaningful and compelling ways about what we need to do. One of the things I realize is we don't even talk on the scale of what would need to happen. I just said to you, you know, we've created this problem over decade upon decade, billions of dollars of tax dollars to create the situation that we face, not only in Milwaukee, but every mid and large sized city. Hardly anybody's talking about that scale of a solution, right? We're not in an era. We're in a conservative era. We don't think about, you know, using tax money for these kinds of programs. We think about the private sector is doing it. And it's just, if we reckon with this, if we're fair-minded, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take consistent engagement, billions of dollars, tax dollars, public policy, you know, to make this happen. Right? Not just a hip new development or a, that kind of thing. You know, right? So we can begin to see the outlines of potential.
potentially some solutions. We can think in more complicated ways, I think, if we start to uncover these stories and these histories. And so that's uh, why I think this is particularly important, not just the story of Milwaukee, but the story of the movement in the North more broadly. And so what I try to do is not only with Milwaukee, but other stories, is try to share that, that history in my work with my students, um, the talks that I give, um, with my writing and my, my research. And the cool thing is that there's all kinds of work to be done. There's all kinds of other books and articles and things that have come out. There's a ton of, of opportunity and resources that you can draw on if you want to delve into this more deeply. There's all kinds of work coming down the pipeline. And if you as a, are a student and want to do it, then you can you know, get involved with it um, there as well. So I'll leave, it, I'll leave it there. I know I've gone over my, my time, but I appreciate you being here and, and participating. Any comments or questions or anything, discussion?